Today we'll be discussing stand-up comedy styles, and we'll be discussing sleep apnea. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing different types of comedy styles, and then we'll be discussing sleep apnea. By the way, they are unrelated. We should mention that, huh? Your comedy style does not lead to sleep apnea. As far as we know. Unless, yeah, exactly. What do we, I haven't done all the research. Anecdotally speaking, there is no connection between comedy comedy stylings or wearing a big mask on your face to sleep at night. But we'll talk about that more uh, very soon. By the way, let people know I uh, got a new microphone for our recording. Sleep apnea machine. Yes, the congratulations on the microphone. Uh, hoping that it results in a richer sound. Let us know what you guys think, if you think there was a big difference from the old episodes to this one. I know personally you're less rich because yes, of the microphone, the microphone but expensive. the sound, I think, I think it's noticeable. I love it when people think we make money from the podcast. They're like, oh, you know, you're making some extra money. Are you kidding? (laughs) This is a money-losing venture. But anyway. Don't tell people that, Asif. This is a passion project. That's the way you say it. That's the way. It's a passion project. It's all about the way you spin these things, fella. Okay, Ali, I want to talk to you about comedy styles, getting back to some questions about the art of stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Now, as we've talked about on the podcast several times, you teach a class at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario on stand-up comedy. So I want to ask you a bit about that. How do you approach this idea of introducing different comedy styles to your say audience? They are an audience. Your students is what I meant. They are an audience, but they are more than anything students and people who enjoy stand-up comedy at some level. Not all of them. Sometimes I'm like, why did you take this class and who's your favorite stand-up comedian? And the answer is, I don't know and I don't have one. And they're like, oh. And then they drop the class a month later. But not always. Sometimes they're like, I'm sticking to this because I've been introduced to something I like. I like this world. Also, sometimes, you know, there's a lot of students from the drama department and it feels like a skill that can complement the skills they already have in place. Sometimes it's an engineering student or a poli-sci student. And it's like, I need this one non- Wow. It's like an elective for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it does great things for my, my brain and my, my stress level. And it's a nice balance. So, you know, there's no way to kind of tell someone, this is the style you should be using, right? Comedy styles are very much the- You know, the choice, it's a very, very personal choice, how you want to stand up on stage and address people, how you feel the most comfortable doing it. And I think we've, we've talked, you know, basically about this before, but there, you know, broadly speaking, there's three types of comedy, you know, there's stand up, there's sketch, there's improv. This is the way we look at the types of comedy, but the styles of comedy, and I'm, I'm going to focus just on stand up. I don't know the world of sketch or improv that well, where, where I can speak about it knowledgeably improv in particular has a very, very long, rich history, which we should actually talk about. I will probably ask a friend in the improv community to either join us or, or feed me a lot of information, but 
there are some real OGs in, in the improv world who helped shape this entire, you know, short form, long form improv and, and people who, who love SNL, I'm sure, you know, that's, that's the greatest sketch comedy out there. I know people are like, it's not what it used to be, but it's, uh, it's been around since 1975. It is something. And you have some friends who've done sketch comedy, been very successful doing sketch yeah. comedy. So maybe we could pull some of those strings and get we're going to do that. On. Let's take a note of that so that we. Don't make empty promises. But right now we're someone, we're, someone make a note of that. Yeah, someone make a note of that, please, please. Oh, that's right. Can't afford we an have. assistant. <laughs> One day soon. So stand up is my area of uh, of interest, and I would say expertise with quotes on it. And it's a weird one, you know. It's like a strange entertainment vehicle to begin with. You don't really have any plot or backstory or narrative as i as i've told people like writing the book my editor would be like okay this is a great story you shared with me why are you telling this story and i i found that so difficult to answer i was like man why are you even asking me that like that doesn't even like that doesn't factor in for a stand-up comic i don't need to know why i'm telling a story i just tell it and you you know stand-up can just be like so I saw this guy the other day on the street and boom, you're into the story. That's it. That's all you need. You don't need a whole bunch of anything, you know, compared to so many other different mediums. So it's a weird one, but at the end of the day, it's, you're a comedian entertaining an audience and that audience laughs or they don't, but the goal is obviously to make them laugh and, and to be entertained. So, you know, if you look up the types of stand up, there's... I mean, there's a lot, and I think it's it's a little bit too niche for my liking when people talk about, oh, there's, you know, comedians who are self-deprecating. There's the self-deprecating style. There's the alt comics. There's the observational, deadpan, mm -hmm. improv, who, you know, who do crowd work type of thing. There's wordplay comedians. I think there's just so much overlap there. Mm -hmm. That's sort of hyper- focusing on those, those comedians. So, you know, in medicine, we have this term called lumpers versus splitters. Have you ever heard of this term? No, I mean, know, but I love it already. And it is basically, do you want to put everything together? So in other words, say we're going to talk about sleep disorders, put all the sleep disorders together and then call that sleep disorders and sleep apnea is one of them. Uh, Sleepwalking is another, night terrors are another, REM behavior disorder is another. Or do you split them off? And then the problem is how much do you split it? There's obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea, mixed sleep apnea, and how much do you kind of like differentiate those things? So you're more in favor of just lumping things together, right? As opposed to being- I'm a lumper, splitter. I suppose. Uh, yeah. As unflattering as that sounds, I might be more of a lumper. I mean, look, I'm going to focus on a few different types, which I find, you know, stand out in, in particular. I will tell you this story, just getting back to- you know, your original question, which is about my students, I introduce them to a bunch of styles and I do that in the interest of showing them, like, don't hesitate to be the person who either tells something completely from their own life, one story, or has a number of jokes that are observational or does a character or does a deep dive on one subject. And, you know, that's the entire five minute set that they do for their final. One of my students memorably became very concerned about, you know, he, he was asking me, sir, are you going to, are you going to film this? And I thought he was asking if I'm going to film their final for their benefit, because they'd like to watch it later. And I said, I'm not going to film it. I'm going to do an audio recording, but you're free to film your own sets. 
And he said, oh, so somebody else might be filming it. I go, yeah, you can find out whoever's filming. You can ask them to film you too. He said, actually, I'm not asking that. I'm hoping nobody films it. I'm a little bit worried about five years, 10 years from now, the stuff I'm saying, if it's ever taken out of context, you know, how it'll look. And so I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I didn't, I didn't think you were coming from that angle, but I, I think it is important to believe in your point of view, whether you believe it or not, it's very important to appear that you believe in your point of view, you know, whether it's your character's point of view or your actual point of view or something you want people to believe in the interest of then, you know, thereby shocking them or, you know, confusing them or giving them a, a little bit of the hard left turn at the end and surprising mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. So he's like, okay. And this was like, you know, two weeks to the final. He's like, I don't know some of these things I'm saying, it could be misinterpreted as something or the other. And he came up with this on his own. He said, okay, what do you think about, I, I, I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm not going to scrap all my jokes. I'm instead going to create a character. And he's the one student I have who did it. And I thought it was very interesting. He came on stage and he was like, yeah, so I've been noticing a few things. And he was this weird sort of, you know, elderly, I don't even know exactly what like his character, nebbish, but it was like, like a, a yeah, like... nebbish, elderly weirdo type of thing, the way he held his, so in a way he did that to kind of protect himself, you know, and yeah, it was pretty interesting to watch and he delivered all his lines very confidently and he was no longer worried about like, will this be taken out of context? Because it's like, you see it's in a certain context. I created this character and I don't believe those things the character does. So all that to say here, here are a few stand-up comedy styles that I think are of particular interest. Like for example, if I was going to send someone to a comedy show, I'd probably tell them if they were one of these type of mm -hmm. stand-up comics. I'm not going to tell somebody like, oh, this person uses wordplay. You'll yeah. love, like that's too that niche mean? for me. I do think that there's some value in telling people when it's a one-liner comic. It's a very interesting style. One-liners, can you think of any one-liner comics, Asif? There will be quizzes, so pay attention. Yeah, I usually say Emo Phillips is probably Phillips the one I think one. of the most, yeah. Emo Phillips is a great example. He has a joke, just to give you an idea of what a one-liner comic does. And now I'll leave you with the last words of my grandfather. A truck... That's it. That's a joke. I mean, that doesn't even take 10 seconds. So the one-liner comedians, the brilliance of these guys are not just how funny their jokes are, but also how many jokes they tell. I mean, in a 45 minute or 30 minute headlining set, you could be looking at, you know, 60, 70, a hundred jokes. It is a crazy amount of stuff to keep up in your mind. So generally, I regard these guys as quite brilliant. So the other guys who come to mind, Mitch Hedberg, right? Mitch Hedberg, one of the greatest one-liner comics, also very short jokes. I saw this wino the other day eating a grape, and I was like, dude, you got to wait, right? Uh, so that's it. That's the whole joke. There's the whole joke, and now you, I mean, a lot of comics are like, I got I to gotta stretch this joke out, and he's just like, no, I'm just going to keep writing more and more. And one of the greatest is Stephen Wright. And Stephen Wright, if you don't know who that is, comedian out of Boston originally, sort of like a, had the real weirdo persona, really one of the best out there. Deadpan as well. Like that. Deadpan he's, he's as well, the example right? of Deadpan, I think. He's an example of Deadpan. And again, Deadpan, I find a little too niche to, to mention, but it is a Deadpan one-liner delivery. So in his Deadpan voice, he'd tell jokes like, 
God, I'd kill for a Nobel Peace Prize. Right? That's it. That's the whole joke. That's all he does. And, and you, it takes a while. Sometimes people roll in and then he's on to the next joke. And there's almost a comedy in how quickly he goes from one to the other. And the, without you really articulating it to yourself, you're kind of, as an audience, going like, mm -hmm. what? Is that it? We're already mm -hmm. on to the next? Mm -hmm. Which is another layer of comedy on top of the comedy that he's actually doing as well. His look as well, his delivery as well. There's multiple mm -hmm. layers of comedy mm -hmm. happening at once. So one-liner comedians, I'm a big fan. Usually they're quite brilliant. And so that's worth mentioning. I think another one in the opposite uh, sort of end of the spectrum is storytelling comedians. Mm -hmm. You know, because storytelling can be, I mean, I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think it's for everyone. I think a lot of people... You know, I, I do a storytelling style in my solo shows, in my one-man show, and I think there's always a handful of people who will come up and be like, that was different, man. That was different. That was, yeah, that's not what I'm used to seeing from you, right? They go out of their way to say that. So I know that some people register this as something inherently different. The goal is still to entertain. The goal is still to make people laugh. But also, you know, in a, in a solo show, in a one-man show, in a one-woman show, you can go places that you don't typically go in a comedy club. In a comedy club, you should be getting a laugh every 20 or 30 seconds, or there is a discernible discomfort that mm -hmm. goes across mm -hmm. the crowd, mm -hmm. right? You usually have the word comedy right behind your shoulder on the stage, the name of the comedy club. And if you're at uh, Chuckles, and there have been no Chuckles, I mean, people get very hyper aware of that. Whereas when you have 90 minutes on a stage, to do whatever you want. You have some time to explore. And, and I really enjoy the format and some of the greats in that department, you know, Bill Burr, there's no, there's no short jokes for Bill Burr, especially now more than ever. Listening to one of his earlier specials, it's, it's a little tighter and, 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 you know, chopped up, but now it's like really long form. Obviously Dave Chappelle, Margaret Cho comes to mind. Canadian guy who's one of the great storytellers here. I, I really like K. Trevor Wilson. Oh, yeah. Rick Mercer, of course, one of the best uh, storytellers. The Irish, I cannot mention, you know, the Tommy Tiernan's of the world, Billy Connolly's of the world. You know, the, he's Scottish, mind you, but people who come from real storytelling culture are always very, very impressive. Richard Pryor, you know, although I saw Richard Pryor do many, many things, there was definitely an element of storytelling there as well. One of the greats. Obviously, I'll mention this as well. Another style of comedy is observational. One of your favorites, Asif. Yeah, Jerry the, Seinfeld, Jerry I think, Seinfeld, is the classic. Right? He's the classic. I think Chris Rock also. This is a lot of sort of like, you ever notice how blah, 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 you know, what's the deal with, what's the deal yeah. with is the, is the trope of it all? Yeah. But yeah, it's like what's happening there is you're not necessarily learning anything about the person themselves, right? Like any Jerry Seinfeld set I've seen, I have not heard him talk about his children. He has a number of children. He has a wife who he loves very much from, you know, as I've seen from interviews, a wonderful relationship with this woman who he met later in life, doesn't talk about them. Now you correct me if I'm wrong, because you've seen more Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, you've seen no, exactly. Mind. He will talk about them in the abstract. You know, when you have kids and they're doing this, or, yeah. you know, when your wife wants to do this, he's not being specific about my wife did this and she did this. Yeah. Some, rarely he does, but that's not usually the situation. So much so that if he's get, telling you an example of a kid, you're not even sure if it's his kid or he's just using this as, as, sure. as, as fodder sure. for jokes. So. And that's why like Chris Rock is almost in quotes in this, because Chris Rock, especially in Tambourine, his special, yeah. the last special, you learn a lot more about Chris Rock. There's a lot more personal stuff that comes up, but originally it was this like 
fantastic observations on society that you know people still remember to this day. The other thing I would probably tell somebody if they were going to a comedy club, I would say that this person does a character. If people do, do characters, I think that's worth mentioning. So a character, we've talked about this on a previous episode where we talked about personas, comedy, comedic personas. It was an episode where we also talked about burnout in the medical uh, community. The characters are like, for example, Andrew, the dice man, Clay, right? Yeah. right? Bobcat Goldthwait, right. Larry the Cable Guy. These are people who completely embody somebody else that has nothing to do with them as a human being. In fact, it's often a completely different persona. I don't know if that's the case with uh, Andrew Dice Clay, but with some of these other guys, it's a completely fictitious character. I have a friend in Canada who plays a character. I'm not going to mention his name because people don't all know that it's a character and it, it gets a little disappointing for people to find out like, oh my God, that's a character. But one of my close buddies is, plays one of these characters. And of course, the danger always is, you know, how do you get out of this character? I guess I'm stuck doing this forever. But if you like the character, that's great. Dave Hempstead is a friend of mine, a stand-up comedian. He used to do a cowboy character. So he was informed by some of his own personal experiences. He lived in Missouri for a couple of years. He was on a golf scholarship in Missouri. Then he was in some other Midwestern state. But yeah, he would put on a cowboy hat and he would do this character. This was before I came to Toronto, so I never saw it, but I hear great things. But Dave stepped out of that and decided to shed the character and, and has had much success without the character. But it's not always that easy. Bobcat Goldthwait also succeeded not as much, I'd argue. You know, I people agree. don't talk about yeah. him, they, they, but he's an incredibly intelligent human being, which the original character did not suggest. I think a lot of people are like, what? I don't want to hear intelligent Bobcat. This is weird. You got your name's Bobcat, bro. The other few fields, styles of comedy, I think shock and insult. It's worth telling people they're going to see an insult comic or a shock comic, right? You should know that before going in, before you tuck into the front row. Classically, right? Don Rickles was the original, you know, sort of, I'm sure there was others more original than him, but Don Rickles maybe popularized it the most. He was an insult comic. Famously said he'll, you know, open equal opportunity insulter and all that. There's, there's much that's been written about how fair his insults really were. But anyway, his name definitely comes to mind. Joan Rivers had a little bit of that shock to her, right? She would say something and people would sort of gasp and laugh at the same time. And then she'd, yeah. oh, 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 come on, come on. Oh, yeah. please, please. Yeah. She would shock them and then pretend to be outraged about the shock that she herself created, right? That was the shtick a little bit. Again, you know, Dice Man was purposefully, you know, shocking. He tried to be... There's a number of other ones, you know, I, I don't always enjoy, I don't know. I don't feel like all of it has aged well either. Yeah. I know what you mean because some of it I find just shock for the sake of shocking, but is that funny or not? There's a bit of like, I think what's more funny is the outrageousness of a situation that, that may be it. But, and I, I think, you know, I'm being a bit critical about Sarah Silverman. I think at the beginning, her comedy was, oh, can you believe a woman saying this? You know, this crude stuff. I didn't find that funny. And I think she's evolved over time and it's not, uh, that's not her style anymore. And I think it's a bit more nuanced. It's funny. I pulled up the Wikipedia entry as we were preparing for this episode on shock comedy. Not a lot of detail, but they said Andrew Dice Clay. Then they included people like Tom Green and Eric Andre. 
I want mm-hmm. to get your thoughts on that. Do you think? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. I think I think Tom Green would go out of his way to do ridiculous things. You know, have a horse's head in his parents' bed as they wake up and see it, or whatever it was. You know what I mean? He was like all about pranks that were above and beyond the average pranks and and yeah i I guess i just i separate these things because another example that this wikipedia entry gives is jackass or dali g show i think there's a difference between trying to do something to elicit a reaction out of shock and maybe that issue of vulgarity versus saying someone doing something on screen and Tom Green is a good example that is so outrageous. You can't believe this is going on. You know yeah. what I mean? I think there's a difference. I prefer the latter. I think that's funny and kind of outrageous. Like that's the word. Whereas the other one is like, what are you you're just trying to offend people? Do you know what I mean? The difference yeah. between those two? Yeah. I'm yeah, not sure, sure I would lump them all together, but whatever. Uh, yeah. Wikipedia doesn't care. They're a lumper. They're a lumper. I mean, I, I, I do know what you're saying. I remember Bobby Slayton, who is, you know, he likes to be uh outrageous he he's been the mc of the nasty show at just for laughs for many years and i was on stage at this small small bar bobby slayton came in to do a little warm-up set then my friend abdul his last name is abdul but he performed then bobby came on and bobby was like ali abdul what the hell's going on is this a terrorist meeting or something nobody laughed to their credit montreal bar was like well that's not really funny at all the only shock that night was how shocked Bobby Slayton was that his joke didn't go over <laughs> yeah. anywhere. Like I think he's used to, you know, no disrespect, but he's used to less educated American crowds in general. And I think people would have gotten a laugh from that in many different markets that he performs in. But yeah, I mean, it's just like being shocking or offensive or insulting for the, for the sake of funny. And it doesn't always work. It doesn't always age well. But the two best who come to mind for me who do this sort of shocking, insulting. I've lumped those two together. I'm definitely a lumper in those, but as far as the insults go, and this is with a huge caveat, it's Jeff Ross, right? The, the, he's the roast master general, all the roasts, something that he started. But I encourage every single listener to look up Jeff Ross and listen to interviews with this guy. He's one of the kindest, mm-hmm. sweetest human beings. He is always, you roast the ones you love is what you, you know, and I, in many cases, comedy is offered without context. So if you see things Jeff Ross is doing, you'd be like, is that guy insulting a handicapped guy? You know, the handicapped guy said, please, please roast me, right? They People come and be like, I want this, I yeah, want this. And yeah. he says, you know, he talks about how many people who have like facial deformities or some kind of like severe burns or severe disabilities will be like, can you roast me? And Jeff's like, this is tough. This is very difficult, but I'm going to do it. And it's people who are like, I just want to be seen as a human being. I want to be roasted just like everybody else. And I spend my life not being treated like a normal human being. And in a way you're roasted. So it's this whole thing. It's, it's worth listening to. It's worth exploring. I find what I've learned about this man. And I, I would say like six different interviews. One of the most kind-hearted people. His interview with Mark Maron is particularly of interest. It's interesting because he's one of the people I've seen live. And I saw him about, 15, I don't think I've told the story in the podcast, but Ali knows the story. About 15 years ago, I was in New York City with my wife and my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. We went to go see a show. And my sister-in-law was happy. She's like, oh, Jeff Ross is, is the headliner. This was before Jeff Ross was really famous with roasting, roast battles, sure. all that stuff. Is he, that he, the night where somebody was high on drugs and got taken off? 
stage. Yeah, it was ridiculous. That's not Jeff Ross, obviously. It wasn't Jeff, Jeff Ross, Ross, no, no, but somebody no, else. Like it, it was, it was ridiculous. The MC did a good job, but I'm like, you know, this is like a high end comedy club, like Caroline's, I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in New York City, like you know, one that's well known. Anyway, that's a whole other ridiculous story. But Jeff Ross was there, and and my sister in law was like, yeah, he does a lot of jokes about celebrities, right? Because that he was starting to get known as that's being the roasting yeah. guy. Yeah, but he didn't. He made fun of people in the audience. And I just didn't think it was that funny because I don't think at that stage of his career, people were going there hoping they would roast him. Absolutely right. And that's a huge challenge when you're on a show with six other comics with different styles. Now people are like, why is this guy being a jerk to me? The last guy wasn't, the host wasn't. Whereas when a thousand people go to see Jeff Ross, now it's a whole different thing. That's right. And so he's at a different level and I can totally picture people being, oh, roast me like you roasted Trump or Justin Bieber. Just roast me like you did that. So I I do think that uh, he's in a bit of a different stage right now. But then you mentioned someone else. Oh, and finally, as far as shock comics go, I think Anthony Jeselnik is worth looking up. Anthony Jeselnik has been doing this for a while. The first time I heard him, I said, pretty damn good, but this is not going to last. I mean, how much of this type of dark, shocking material stuff that people are like, I really shouldn't be laughing at this, but I am. How, How long can this go on? And he's, you know, people first heard of him on a roast. Most people, I had knew, known about him before just because comedy is my, you know, was, it was my life even more so then than it is now. And so I'd seen him before do a shorter set and I liked it, but then he was on one of the roasts. I don't remember who it was, but he really, you know, there's a few comics who come on those roasts and then it's just like a steady path upwards after that. Everyone's like, who is this person? I need to know who this person is. And he was like merciless and really like sizzling with his burns and in, in his roasting and that's his comedy is is very similar and it's uh he's been quite great i would recommend if you have the stomach for it if you're not easily mm-hmm. offended you go check out some of his earlier stuff and then work through to to now it's impressive how he stayed uh, he stayed relevant and kept the same persona of a of a, of a shock comic just as we're wrapping up the comedy styles what do you think about prop comics Yeah. So I actually, that's another one of my categories, but it is, I'm a lumper, guilty as charged, props, but also magic and music go in there as far as I'm concerned. And ventriloquism you put in with those as well? Ventriloquism I put in with something that's not comedy. No, I'm just joking. Ventriloquism I definitely put in there too. That is a prop. If you look, comedy originally is a person and a microphone on a stage. This was the entire thing. Anything you bring to enhance or compliment, I think it's kind of a prop. Mm -hmm. And I don't look at props as a bad thing at all. I think sometimes people go prop comic. Do you know who's been looked at the most disparagingly? Well, there's two. Yeah. In the past, it was Gallagher. Gallagher passed away recently, Recently, last year. But Carrot Top is the one that everyone- Absolutely. People always use his name as disparagingly as possible. The way people use Dane Cook's name, it's Mm. rarely complimentary. But Carrot Top is a supreme entertainer. Supreme Mm -hmm. entertainer. Does he look insane these days? All jacked. Jacked Yes, but look, uh, growing up with hair that red, who knows what happened to him. So, But he's a great entertainer. But- who is, let me quiz you on this. One of the greatest prop comedians was huge in the seventies, still active today, but no longer as a stand-up comic. He would do music. 
He would do props and he had a background in magic. Steve Martin? You got it. I had other clues. I didn't think yeah, you were going to get this. Yeah. The music was the banjo. I just remember the, the, the arrow, the, bunny the arrow ears. through the, the arrow, head. the right? bunny ears. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a guy who I was like, oh, you just do whatever it takes to entertain people. Your goal is to entertain. So why would we judge somebody for bringing props and different things on stage? So I just don't, I never have. And when you talk about musical comedians, there's an interesting thing, you know, there's the if you watch Zach Galifianakis live at the Purple Onion, I think it is, Dimitri Martin, they're playing music, but the music is really not part of what's going on. Like it's, all they're doing is telling jokes with a little bit of like piano melody or guitar. So you really only know how to, you, you really have to know how to strum a few chords and that's mm -hmm. it. It just is a backdrop, like at a speakeasy, you know, somebody just talking with a little bit of like melody in the back. Whereas other comedians, Adam Sandler, mm -hmm. Craig Robinson. Craig Robinson, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Flight of the Concords. Oh yeah, of Jermaine, course. Brent, Garfunkel and Oates. I don't know if people know Kate Micucci yeah. and Ricky Lindholm. Fantastic. Yeah. Flo and Joan. Oh my God. This is a duo. You got to look up. They're a British duo, sing a, a lot of musical comedy. Fantastic. Bo Burnham and Tim Minchin, I leave their names for the last, they're the best that I've seen. Tim Minchin in particular. Yeah, I've, Bo Burnham we've oh, talked about before, I, I know his work. Yeah. Tim Minchin, I've never even heard Tim of Tim Minchin before. I haven't seen in a long time. It's one of the greatest live acts I've ever seen, ever. Really phenomenal dude. And then, you know, Magic, I, I don't know if I have the patience for Magic, but they, I've seen certain people do it in a way that's uh, incredibly entertaining. I... Tell me, you have your it's hand Pen, up. It's Penn and Teller. Like, that is Penn the pinnacle of comedy magic. I can't even think of another example after them. I love Penn and Teller. I've seen them live. Maybe because it might be either diminishing returns or you're aping something that is already at the at the pinnacle, and it's hard to compete with Penn and sure, Teller. Sure. They have the whole, you know, one guy speaks, one guy doesn't. And again, I've seen them live. I've watched their TV shows. I have, I have a huge respect for them. Sure, but sure, sure. are there others that you're thinking of? Well, or? there's one guy, David Acker. Uh, David is a friend of mine. He, he co-owns the Comedy Nest in Montreal. And no matter... Who I'm talking to, what I'm doing, I will leave anything to go watch David on stage. It's always entertaining. It's a mix of, again, it's the Steve Martin thing, whatever I have on hand, tell some jokes, do some magic, do some tricks. But his tricks are also like, just to give you an idea of one of his, he's like, all right, now, miss, it is not appropriate to ask a woman her age, but what if I guessed your age? Hmm, what would you think of that if I could just, with barely any information about you, know exactly what your age is? Okay. All right. And I only need one piece of information for you. What is the year of your birth? Right? So then it, this is like the way he does it. He just makes it like tricks that everybody can do. And then at the end, he'll do a card trick. And you're like, wait, what? Oh, this guy is super legit. This is insane. So it's, uh, it's just like always this incredible journey that he does. And I love watching him. And then the final type of comedy that I would be remiss to mention is political comedy. If somebody's going to a comedy show, I'm going to tell them it's a political comedian. Also, not too different from the one-liner comedians when they're good. They're quite brilliant. They're quite brilliant. And, you know, John Stewart comes to mind, obviously. John Oliver comes to mind. Rick Mercer comes to mind in this country. Bill Maher, I struggle to call him brilliant just because what a complete dick he is. But, I mean, he's, he's around. Yeah. He's lasted. It's just very difficult to listen to a guy talk about cancel comedy has gone too far. I'm like, dude, you're on a huge network with the third show 
third or fourth television show you've ever had, you're not affected by this. What are you talking about? So it's a little bit of like a self-victimization uh, stick shtick that he has. But And then of course, one of the best to, to, to ever do political comedy is George Carlin, you know, and he got more political as the years went on and almost became uh, prophetic in his approach. And it became less funny and a little bit too real. And it's stuff that still applies today, 30, 40 years later in many cases. So Anyway, those are the various styles of co comedy. If you were going to do stand-up comedy, only you know what you'd pick. But certainly, if you have a magic background, a musical background, if you have an interest in politics, if you have, you know, the knack of, like, insulting people or doing voices, all of that is worth using. And I think that's, that's the message to students of stand-up comedy. Use what you have available to you. If you can do it confidently, absolutely use it, right? The Irish are natural storytellers. And so the comedy is storytelling. So whatever comes naturally to you. I remember watching this one comedian. It still kills me to this day that I didn't catch his name, but it was one just for last festival. I watched him do a five minute story, which is fantastic. Go to see him on another sh uh, show. It's the same guy. I'm like, oh, this guy's going to tell this story. Great. Now it's a 12 minute version. I'm like, oh, it's the same story. He's and then because of him, I went to the Irish comics show, whatever they call it, just for laughs back then, the luck of the Irish. So it's this guy's on it again. And now he tells a 20 minute version of the same story. And it was as brilliant as the five minute. He just knew all the pacing where to, I mean, he had turned it into, that's where I first saw like the art of storytelling. Anyway, those are the comedy styles. I hope that's been interesting. I hope some of these names are unfamiliar to you and you, you look them up and hopefully enjoy them. Yeah, we'll list them on our website so people can check them out. All right, Asif, let's talk about something that's been in the news a fair amount. And by in the news, I mean in the lives of more and more friends that I have. <laughs> Sleep apnea. What is it? How do I not get it? You may already have it. Oh, well, fifty percent of us on this podcast have it, and okay. so we haven't actually done this very much. Talked about our personal medical lives. All these hinted at a bit. Certainly, you've talked about your father who had some lung issues. So we have hinted at it. But I do have a type of sleep apnea, so I'll talk about it. So sleep apnea is basically this pausing or cessation of breathing when you're asleep. And there's two different forms. One is called central sleep apnea. One is called obstructive sleep apnea. So we're not going to be talking about the central form. That's a bit of a different situation. So just obstruction. So what happens is in most people, when you're sleeping, you have some collapse of your upper airway structures that will cause an obstruction of your breathing in and out. And that will cause you to either reduce your breathing, stop breathing, and that will result in decreased oxygen, increased carbon dioxide, right? Because we're not breathing out carbon dioxide, so it's staying in your, in your blood, and usually arousing you from sleep. So basically your body eventually says, oh my gosh, you're kind of dying, so wake up and stop doing that. So then it's then you wake up. So that's mm -hmm. why people will be tired, have an unrefreshing sleep. And of course, snoring, because snoring is associated a lot with this collapse of the upper airway. So not all people who snore have sleep apnea and you don't have to have snoring for sleep apnea, right? So either one is not necessarily true, but it's often correlated. So that's, that's essentially what it is. One out of two of us have it for sure. Maybe two out of two of us, you know, maybe I'll find out more at the end of this. 
I do know that, you know, my snoring is not consistent. I think it's connected to my weight. I think it's connected to mm -hmm. late night drinking, eating, just basic mistreatment of myself seems to result in more <laughs> snoring. Could you have sleep apnea and never have been somebody who snores yeah. or is that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this it's is not, it's a, not always associated. Not that yeah. Way. Very important. Yeah. Okay. So tell me how common it is in society yeah. because I've definitely met more and more people, not met, these are my friends for many years and keep finding out that they need the sleep app. Yeah, it's, it's the type of thing, like if it comes up in conversation over dinner, then you're like, one guy will say they have it and then another guy says they sure. do. Like, Yeah, nobody's opening with uh, come see my mask. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think more and more it does come up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I would say half the time, you know, when you're out with people, at least one or two people is, is saying if you actually ask them about it. So yeah. this is the problem is, a study done in Canada, I'll stick with Canadian studies for now, by the Public Health Agency of Canada done several years ago, thought that 26% of Canadian adults report symptoms and risk factors that will put them at a high risk of obstructive sleep apnea. So that's a quarter of the people surveyed. But if you look at actual people who've been diagnosed, it's only about 3% of Canadians age 18 and over who've been reported to have sleep apnea. So there's a discrepancy between people who might have it and people who are. So probably what that means is a lot of people are undiagnosed or it's an underdiagnosed condition. Or unwilling to go get diagnosed. Well, that's an, that's an interesting thing. Someone, will, I'll mention this now, someone who shall remain nameless, but everybody who knows me knows who I'm talking about, said, and I said to this person, yeah, you might have a sleep apnea based on your symptoms. Your wife is quite worried about you. And this person is like, I would rather die than have to mm. wear one of those things. I'm never mm -hmm. wearing that. Okay. okay. Unfortunately, you might just get your wish. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So what are the causes of sleep apnea? And are they things that are on the rise in society or are they things that have always been around? Well, one of them you kind of alluded to before, and that's your body mass index. So the more weight you have on your body, just the more weight you will have in this area in terms of the upper airway, and that can increase airway collapsibility. And you can get adipose tissue in your tongue and again, the upper airway. It's been reported to be present in more than 40% of people with a BMI of more than 30. Again, we've talked about the limitations of BMI before on the podcast, but in general, that's what we would say. So definitely increased BMI, increased neck circumference, those are risk factors. But it's very important to know there are some people who are of completely normal weight who have sleep apnea. In fact, a lot of people. So that Sounds like Asif's on the defensive and possibly talking about himself. <laughs> There we go. Yeah. I won't be talking about my BMI. Do we see situations where somebody has sleep apnea and then they lose a significant amount of weight, bring their yes. BMI down and yes. now their sleep apnea yes. goes away? It's, so de it's, definitely it's not one of these things treatment. like gout. Once you get it, you have it forever. No. Okay. So definitely it's a, it's a good treatment is to just start off by losing weight. So yeah, absolutely. For okay. sure. Okay. What other causes are we looking at? Those are the main ones. In kids, kids can get sleep apnea too. So what? people find that very unusual, but it's all because of large tonsils and adenoids. So oh, sure. uh, in general, it's a bit unusual for children to snore. So if your child snores, you should be a bit suspicious about that and at least pay more attention and then listen. <laughs> you know, Go outside their room with your ear or use a baby monitor and see, do they have pauses in their breathing? If not, you probably need to get checked out by at least an ear, nose, and throat doctor. They can kind of give recommendations on how big the tonsils and adenoids are, and then you might What need to kind of snoring are we talking about? Are we talking about the snoring where, you know, like 
my wife wakes me up and goes, it didn't sound like you were breathing and your snoring is sounds insane. Or are we talking about even just like a, you know, little bit of a, like a cat's purring and a little bit of a whistle out the no, nose. With, with kids, I would say it's more like the sawing wood type thing. Like it's, it's okay. pretty, they it's shouldn't pretty, have yeah, adult it, sounding yeah. snoring. And I just, I will ask that, you know, if kids I'm seeing, I don't see kids for sleep apnea per se, but if they're having headaches and headaches can be a consequence of sleep apnea because of the high carbon dioxide levels that can give you headaches in the morning. Uh, poor school performance in kids can be another kind of symptom. And sorry, we're, we're moving a bit into symptoms. But if you have those things, you might want to be a bit suspicious. But if your spouse says that you pause or your bed partner says you pause during sleeping, you need to be checked out. Period. End of story. And if you call your bed partner a bed partner, I mean, I can only imagine what kind of sexy times you have in the bedroom. Yeah, not, not a lot. Come to bed, my bed partner. <laughs> Anyway, are we done with the causes? Because right now it just seems like you're talking about primarily weight. And tonsils, those are the main things. People may have structural problems with their nose or upper airway that predispose them to them, but that's probably the main one that people should be aware of. Okay. What you said, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, getting in symptoms. So let's, let's talk about that. Let me just add to this. In. It's also important to remember that this kind of collapse of your airway can just occur to people when they get older. So it's not like, that's why it's really important to people to say, well, I'm not overweight. My BMI is fine. I don't think this applies to me. It cannot be the case. All right. You recommend anyone recording themselves at night when they're sleeping? Because if you don't have a partner oh, to, I don't know. because I mean, you just said that if you're ever told by someone else yeah, that yeah. you're, you're i don't know paying. that's i've never really thought about that i mean i guess it wouldn't hurt the problem is you don't know if you're snoring right or pausing your breathing i guess you could do that yeah, yeah. I, I honestly never thought about that but i feel like when idea. i wake up if i've been snoring i'm pretty aware of it just from a slight rawness in the back of my throat that i don't always feel oh, it's it's noticeable and yeah. every time i feel that rawness and i ask my wife you know was i snoring there's always like were you snoring for God's sake. So inconsiderate. <laughs> I guess that's a yes. Let's talk about the symptoms then. We're dipping into there. What are the symptoms of sleep apnea? So another interesting thing is 25% of people with sleep apnea report daytime sleepiness, but that means 75% do not. Okay, so people think, oh, if it's interfering so much with my sleep, I'm probably going to be tired the next day. But not everybody does. And I had very few symptoms of daytime sleepiness. So I'm going to give you guys examples as we're going on about how this came about as a diagnosis for me. And, and so, yeah, I don't have a lot of daytime sleepiness. You can do something called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which the respirologist I saw did. And a sleep medicine specialist can be a respirologist, a breathing specialist, or a neurologist. Those are usually the two types of people who will, who will see you for it. But I, I saw a respirologist. So they did a sleepiness scale. They asked you questions like, would you fall asleep in a conversation? Would you fall asleep if you were driving? Would you fall asleep in all these? I'm like, what are you talking about? No, I, of course oh, not. Or, 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 or in a movie, like you're sitting watching a movie or a TV show lying down. Would you fall asleep? I would never do that. But the only thing I said is like, you know, if it's a weekend and you want to have a nap. Would you have a nap? Yeah. I could lie down and have a nap. I'm, you know, usually tired from work. So I had a very low sleepiness scale, but lots of people have a very high one. The other things is the snoring we, we talked about, but it doesn't mean again, just cause you snore. I have a friend who has very bad snoring. He's told me his wife has complained many times about it. He wants to have sleep apnea so he can get the treatment for it. They're like, no, you have no sleep apnea. You just snore. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? So, it's, so it's, you don't again, get the, that one mask one. handed to you. Nobody's giving you that mask for No, free. I mean, yeah, I guess he could pay for it, but no. 
So we talked about daytime sleepiness, waking at nighttime due to a choking or gasping, right? <laughs> that is not your bed partner's hands around your neck. <laughs> a morning headache. So we talked about poor concentration, irritability. Some people have erectile dysfunction, some men. And then like we said, your bed partners can report snoring or witness apneas. There's also atypical symptoms, which are more often reported by women. So insomnia, so difficulty sleeping, impaired memory, mood disturbance, and even bedwetting in some people. Because what happens is it's interfering with your sleep. So you're trying to like, when you do get to sleep, you can fall into a very deep, slow wave sleep, right? Because that's kind of the restorative sleep that, and you have a sleep debt that you're trying to repay. So sometimes that can happen as well. So what happened with, with us is, you know, I was snoring for like, I mean, I didn't snore like years and years ago when I first got married, but as I got older, again, you get this collapse of the upper airway. I started snoring more and my wife just put up with it. And then for about a period of time, she probably gave it at least six to 12 months. And she's like, listen, I can't sleep anymore because you sound like you're dying all the time. And well, she's like, once your bed wedding kicked in, I'm sure it was very difficult her, <laughs> for her to sleep. No. So she, no comment. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> and then she's like, it's because you're sleeping on your back. Just turn on your side. And it goes right. away. So she pokes me yeah, in the yeah, shoulder yeah. till, we, I, we till, till I turn over and then it's yeah. fine. And it's also because for some reason over time, I just went from being a front sleeper and side sleeper to a back sleeper majority over time. So that's basically what happens. She's like, okay, you basically need to get tested for this. But wait a second. If there is a solution, which is making a quarter turn of your body, then do you not just sort of stop worrying? And well, you're like, the oh, problem is, is like, I, you can start off sleeping a certain way, but then you can shift back shift to your back bed to and you. then choke yourself out in your sleep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there are some, we'll get to the treatment in a second, but there are some devices which aren't the first line for treatment, but yeah. where basically you could just imagine, imagine you're wearing something like a body pillow, which is like or a vest which has like a shark fin on it. It doesn't, but imagine it has like a big dorsal fin on it. So it prevents you from turning onto your back. Hilarious. Like that is an actual device that some people have to use. But anyway. I we'll, mean, we'll that's the one I'm going for over the mask first. Okay. First I'm going okay, for that calm one. down. Calm I'm down. just saying, I'm just saying. Yeah. Ollie was the mystery person I was talking about before. Who said he'd rather die. <laughs> I don't know about rather die, but yeah, I'd rather not. I mean, as it is. I have to put a retainer on my, because I grind my teeth at night. Oh, yeah. and you can imagine how attractive that yeah, is in the bedroom. Ha ha, going to bed now. The sleepiness scale, did you get through all the things that they Before measure? falling asleep? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they do the sleepiness scale. That's a different thing. And do you do a sleep test as well? Did you right. stay overnight so, somewhere? So that's, that's the next thing. So if you're suspicious about this, then you need to do a sleep study, which is called a polysomnogram. It's called polysomnography to do it. So basically you go to a sleep lab. There are some home tests as well. We won't get into that. I think that's a bit of a debate in terms of how accurate that is, but let's just say most people should go into a sleep lab and they hook you up. They hook you some electrodes on your head and some straps on your body to measure your chest wall rising and falling. And, you know, you wear comfortable clothes, you know, you kind of change into pajama type outfit and then they hook this all up to you they do an oxygen saturation they measure your carbon dioxide and then you basically go to sleep there so and I, you know it takes a bit of time to fall asleep but you know you end up falling asleep you can't have any caffeine or anything for a certain period of time beforehand it's fine it doesn't hurt or anything i just a bit weird to be sleeping not in your bed it's like and, a hotel yeah exactly it's not that nice so <laughs> then 
halfway through the night, I got woken up by the sleep technologist. They're like, do you want to try using what's called I CPAP? The, I thought the sleep technologist was like, you're snoring a lot. Can you turn over on your side? <laughs> Well, what are you doing uh, here? So actually that's what they said. They said, do you want to try using the CPAP, which is a continuous positive pressure ventilation, which is the treatment for it, which we'll get to in a second. Do you want to just do a trial of that right now? I'm like, well, I'm kind of sleeping. So no, it's okay. They're like, maybe just sleep on your side. Okay. Oh boy. So all this to say, I went home and the sleep study ends around 7.30. So then I got home around 8. At 8.05, I get a phone call from the clinic they're like yeah 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 the doctor wants you to start cpap right away here is a prescription hasn't seen me he's like you need to start immediately okay so let's talk a bit about i'm going to tell let's you guys talk a my bit results. about the fear that you struck in the heart of exactly this doctor. Yeah. it never happens that a doctor calls you half an hour after whatever it is you've done yeah. to tell you you need to get treatment right away so basically what the sleep study, me it measures a bunch of things. It can look for restless leg syndrome. It can look for other sleep disorders as well. But in terms of this, it's looking for what are called apneas, which is near complete sensation of airflow for more than 10 seconds in sleep, or hypopneas, which are reductions in airflow by more than 30% with a similar reduction in your oxygen saturation by at least 3% or arousals from sleep. So you can get what's called an A. HI, which is an apnea hypopnea index, which is the number of apneas or hypopneas over a certain period of time. And if you have sleep apnea, you have an AHI of five or more events per hour, and you can diagnose someone like that. So mild obstructive sleep apnea is five, AHI of five, moderate is 16, and 30 or higher is severe. Do you want to Where guess what you? mine was, Ali? Was it like a hundred? Not that bad. Okay. Okay. It was 45. Okay. I had 306 apneas and hypopneas overnight during this test. You want to guess the period of time I completely stopped breathing for? Was it more than 10 seconds? 12 minutes. What? 12 minutes. Are so you, I showed this to my friend who's a respirologist. Brain dead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Can you believe I was a neurologist? And she's like, ah, well, you don't do anything halfway. Yeah. <laughs> So she was like, yeah, you need to go on treatment. So interestingly, when I was on my back, my index was 48. So even higher on my back, mm. but, and then non-supine side, it's a bit hard to sleep on your stomach with all the setup on. So let's say side 3%. So definitely a big position dependent, right? Meaning that if you went into the sleep lab and you only slept on your side the entire night, yes, it would. They been would not have step. even recommended a sleep apnea machine. Correct. But you could have died the next night in your sleep because that's true. Out. But it just—it's very unusual for people not to kind of. Ah, okay. move. You can't really okay. control that as much. So they basically said you needed to go on this treatment, and so. The treatment, like I said, is the CPAP machine. So you go in and, and you meet with a respiratory therapist and they'll prescribe it to you. In our province, you can get a big discount on the cost of the machine. The machine costs like several thousand dollars, but you can get a discount on it if you have a sleep apnea and certain criteria met. So you get that kind of refunded to you if you have extended healthcare benefits that can pay for the rest. You have a choice of wearing a full mask or just what are called, they call them nasal pillows. It's so nice. Yeah. Nasal pillows. So just a nasal mask that just That's goes into your nostrils. Right. Yep. And it's different, by the way, than like an oxygen nasal prong. So those are two different things. This is, oh, this okay. is so, so what happens is it is pushing 
air it, uh, through this machine generates air and pushes it into your airway. So either just through your nose or your mouth and nose. And that is basically propping up your nasal passages. I'm simplifying this, but that's what it's doing and preventing them from collapsing. That's all it's doing. Some people need CPAP for other reasons based on their a problem with their lungs, but this is just supporting your upper airway and that's it. So that's what it was. I opted. I said, I don't think I could do the mask. I think I'd feel a bit claustrophobic. Just give me the one that you think is going to be the most tolerable. They said, okay, try the nasal stuff. So I went home and set it up. How long do you think it took me to get used to wearing this? Because that's a lot of people are worried about. I can't do it. I'm, I'm going to be so uh, uh, not used to it. I mean, weeks at the very least, I assume. 10 seconds. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not exaggerating. Your body wanted it so badly. Yeah, or? yeah. So ten seconds. I'm like, I'll, I'll take that, and I'm like, it feels a bit weird again for the first. Then you're like, oh, actually, it's okay, and then you just fall asleep. Then you say, what about my wife? Because the machine does make some noise. They try to make them, you know, whisper quiet, but they do make some noise. I said, ah, how are you doing with the noise? She's like, it's better than you dying every night. So mm. yeah, because she couldn't sleep because she's like, uh, then she's a snore. Then I would stop breathing, and she's like. What? She has to nudge me, you know, to, for me to wake up. And so she couldn't sleep. She wasn't getting any sleep. She's like, yeah, now I can sleep. I just, this is like white noise in the background and I'm fine. And I don't have to be paranoid every night that you're dying, which I essentially was when you stop breathing for 12 minutes is not good. And so I thought it was very easy to tolerate personally. And then you probably want to know what happened. Remember, I wasn't actually that sleepy during the day, but I did find That's I so had, a, I did have some more energy over time and you also have, you're not getting very good restorative sleep and you're not getting a lot of dreaming. So, because you need to pass through certain stages of sleep to get to REM sleep, which is where you dream. So some people don't get a lot of REM sleep, so they just don't dream. So I didn't realize, I didn't really dream for a very long time. So when you start CPAP and you finally get a normal sleep cycle, you have a dream debt that needs to be repaid. Oh my so God. So you have... Dreams that go on, very vivid dreams that go on hours and hours and hours. It's the craziest dreaming you'll have aside of, I'm sure if people took like some sort of psychedelic or something, but so you have this dream debt that gets repaid over about a month or so. And it's very interesting. So you knew it was doing something. It's a dream debt. What a concept. And then I don't know if that's a technical term, but it's been shown before. The other Were you waking up and telling your wife about all your dreams? (laughs) And then she was like, you know what? How about we take off the CPAP machine? It's better without. That didn't happen. The other thing, which is interesting, and I don't want to say this too much because I don't want to discourage people, but you actually gain a bit of weight. And I'm not sure the respirologists know if it's when you have mild, moderate, severe apnea, you gain a bit of weight after you start to use CPAP again. And my theory for why this is, again, I could be very wrong and I gained a bit of weight after starting using it, which is like weird because we just talked about how, you know, if you lose weight, that's how you'll keep it off. So why would you gain weight? I think it's because your body is so metabolically active trying to not die overnight. So then then it's like, oh, I can finally relax. And then you're not using up all that energy overnight doing it. Again, I don't know if that's true. I do know that some people will gain a bit of weight on it, like five, 10 pounds. When you, I like when you your go theory. It, but, As a guy who knows nothing about medicine, I'd like. I but like I'm that pretty. Theory. I'm pretty sure that's it. Again, my yeah. friends are respirologists, or anybody who's listening. If you think I'm wrong, or respiratory therapist, send us an email, and I will correct Give us a myself. Better answer. So that's basically my kind of story about it. 
And in your case, it's sleep apnea machine for life. It's the CPAP for life. There's no... Yeah, I mean... Or you is mean, there a way to prop up those passages? So, very interesting question. So, you can have... So, that you can actually have a dental appliance. It's not quite as good as using a CPAP machine, but some people can use a dental appliance. They recommend that more if you have mild or moderate severe sleep apnea, not severe like I did. And that's what the doctor said when I eventually met up with him about a month or so later. He like you have severe so you know these aren't really an options for you people could also have surgery which is this maxillomandibular advancement it's a surgical procedure for highly selective patients who you can't tolerate other therapies i have a friend who shall remain nameless again i have lots of friends like tons who use cpap now and one of them is like yeah i just couldn't do it every morning i would wake up and the mask was thrown on the ground like when i was asleep i would just do that and i just I'm not trying to do it. I want to wear it, but it just wouldn't work. So then you have to look at other options. So then surgery is a possibility. I'll link to some review articles, one in New England Journal of Medicine, one in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. But there is, I guess, some case series which suggests there is a high rate of major complications with this surgery up to 14%, 13 to 14%, which is quite a high, you know, complication rate. Oh, yeah. So maybe reserved for specific situations. And again, a dental appliance needs to be fit by a dentist who has experience in sleep apnea. So not just any dentist, but you could use that again, maybe for more mild cases. What are the possible consequences if you don't treat it at all? I mean, there's death in your case, I think was a possible consequence, but is there something short of that that's still pretty bad? Well, the question is why, you know, does it confer this thing other than you just not breathing at nighttime, but severe sleep apnea, which is what I had, you have a 2.6 times increased risk of having a heart attack, congestive heart failure, or just death from a cardiac cause. Your risk of ischemic stroke is higher with untreated obstructive sleep apnea, especially if you're on the more severe end, over 19 events per hour and over 25 events per hour. Remember, I had way more than that. You can get risk of heart rate problems like atrial fibrillation, hypertension that you can't treat. So you're thinking, why can't we treat this hypertension? You're all on these medicines. You're getting resistant hypertension because of sleep apnea and insulin resistance, which can lead to diabetes. So again, and there's things we don't think about either. Sleep apnea is associated with a two times increased risk of being in a motor vehicle accident. So something we don't think about, but again, your sleep apnea is leading to daytime sleepiness. It's an issue. By the way, speaking of that, some people are a bit worried about, I don't want to go for this study because they're going to tell me I have sleep apnea and then I can't drive. That is a worry for some people, but you only will have your license taken away if you have excessive daytime sleepiness from the sleep apnea or something very different like narcolepsy, which is a whole other different sleep disorder, which we could talk about at a different time. But if you don't have any daytime sleepiness, like I didn't, then there's really no, no risk factors. And they're not giving these machines out willy nilly, right? This is very much like you have to absolutely need it before they put you on a sleep apnea. Well, machine. that's a very interesting question. So any degree of sleep apnea, you can go on a machine because they have found things that are most improved when you go on a CPAP machine are your sleep quality, daytime fatigue, and quality of life. Those things are all improved even in patients who have mild or moderate sleep apnea. So randomized controlled trials support the use of CPAP for quality of life. And there is ongoing research to suggest that it might improve morbidity, for example, reducing your blood pressure. There is evidence to show that using it reduces motor vehicle accidents. But 
does it in all patients reduce your cardiovascular risk? Not necessarily. It's a bit controversial in the literature, and that could be because of confounding factors, right? If you have a high BMI, then you might have diabetes, which might predispose you to having a heart attack, irregardless of whether you go to sleep apnea or not, or just as one example. I ask also that question just because, you know, the skeptic in me wonders about if this has turned into a racket, you know, the way uh. every single kid needs braces these days, as it turns out, and it's like correlated with how much insurance you have. Like, oh yeah, yeah you should get <laughs> braces. There was like three people in my entire class ever who ever had braces. And now all four of my kids are going to be having braces. It just feels like, you know, I wouldn't, that's, I ask from that perspective. Well, this is, this is it. And so I don't think it's a racket in the way you're saying, but the real question is, which to be honest with my family doctor said, they said, I can send you for a sleep study, but are you going to actually wear this if, you know, you, you have it? Because again, for mild or to moderate sleep apnea, it has to be affecting your life. So is it you know, making you sleepy during the day? You're not getting restful sleep and you're willing to wear this, then maybe you should. But if you have severe, then there is a lot of these risks about cardiovascular disease, premature death, stroke, et cetera, that you really need to know. But the problem is, just like me, I didn't know I had severe until I did, did the test. You know, I asked the average person, oh, do you think I would have severe sleep apnea? My family doctor didn't think so. Even my friend who's a respirologist probably wouldn't have guessed it. So it's just too hard to know whether you have or not. That's why I would suggest... If you have the symptoms, just go for the test. And if you're on the mild to moderate side, then maybe you don't need to do anything. But you really want to know if you're one of those severe patients because I'm not that interested in dying. So I'd rather do what I can to try and prevent that if at all possible. Smart. Really smart. Really? You're not being sarcastic? I mean, it's good to not die. That was our show for today. Let us know what you guys thought. Yeah, it's very interesting. So Ali talking about something that he has a lot of experience with, with the comedy styles, and me talking about my own personal experience with sleep apnea. Like I said, I really encourage people to get checked out if they're suspicious about it. Listen, and maybe you don't have it. Then there's nothing to, to worry about, right? You got tested. But if you happen to be like me on the severe end, which I did not think beforehand, a lot of benefits to treatment. Let us know what you guys thought. Reach out to us, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Let us know what you guys thought. Dr. V Comedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are everywhere. Ali, anything to mention for March? Yeah, I'll be in Western Canada in a number of cities, and you can find out which cities those are in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta via my website, standupali.com. And of course, Canada Reads, you know. I'm yes. hoping people are reading. I've been reading. Yeah. Phenomenal books. Oh, great. Unbelievable. Great. Really a crazy collection of books. And yeah, it's going to be hard work for the panelists to discount the books that they're not championing. I think they all bring like some very, very valid, not, not just great literature, but valid points in this idea of like, you know, books that will shift your perspective. That's the theme. And yeah, they're great. Absolutely wonderful, wonderful reads so far. I've got two left. Oh, great. So... Just in closing, remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. They're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice, like whether you need a sleep study or not. Thanks for listening. Bye. His voice went really high up there when he said, I'm not a doctor. Bye. Bye.